So we're in Romans chapter 8, and I'd like for you to take a gander at verse 19 and a few verses following tonight. We'll start in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, because when we were last together, that's where we left off. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 8, verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, folks, the environment is in distress. It is unsatisfied. It has an anxious longing for an outcome it has not yet seen nor experienced. It is unsettled. The atmosphere, the creation is unsettled and unstable. It is uncomfortable and it has an anxious longing for something. In fact, that phrase, anxious longing, means to have such an intense expectation. It's as if you're straining at the neck, you're looking so expectantly for a desired outcome, you're just extending your neck and head as far as it could go above your shoulders to give you a good view. It's like when a loved one is arriving at an airport, you go to meet them, to pick them up, but you're there with a number of others whose loved ones are on that flight, and you stand in the crowd. Everybody's standing. Here people are deplaning and coming down the hallway, you know, and you're jockeying. Everyone is for position, and you're, you're raising your head as far as you could. You're making yourself as tall as you possibly could be So, because you have this anxious longing for to see your loved one, to be reunited with whoever it is who's coming to visit you and whom you have affection for. In fact, your longing is so, so intense, sometimes you find yourself, you're not even aware of it, you find yourself getting up on your tiptoes, don't you? This happens to me all the time for obvious reasons. But I think it happens to everybody. I mean, even tall people, you could see them, you can see them lifting. Folks, that's the sense in which we see creation anxiously longing for a certain outcome it has not yet experienced. It's as if creation is on its tiptoes. It's, it's expectant. It has a hopeful expectation, but it is unsatisfied until its expectation is to be fulfilled. And, and what is it? that the creation is waiting eagerly for. Well, the verse says it is for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about that. Now, those of us who are Christians are termed children of God already. We are sons and daughters of God. We've come to be by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, by our faith in him, we've come to be adopted sons and daughters of God. So those of us who are sons and daughters of God are that already, yet our identity has not yet been fully recognized nor appreciated, especially by those who are not sons and daughters of God. There will come a day, for instance, when we could be distinguished from the crowd. For instance, if I asked you uh, one at a time to take your turn, stand up and point to those here who you believe to be Christians just on the basis of their appearance only. 
You, do, you don't know them, let's, let's assume. And I just said, based upon their physical appearance, where they look, point to the ones who are sons of God and those who are not. I don't think you'd get good grades. and We could be lost in a crowd. We've not yet come to be in our resurrected, glorified bodies. Our bodies and the clothes we put on them really look the same as everybody else's. We're not distinguished. We're not head and shoulders above anybody else in terms of our physical makeup. And so the creation is waiting for the time, anxiously, when those who are already in the status of being sons of God are fully revealed. Then we are separated from the crowd in that our appearance is no longer ordinary and normal. It is extraordinary. God joins us to a resurrected body. It's called a glorified body, fit for eternity. These are not. They wear out. One day we occupy a body that is fit for eternity. And that's exactly what creation is anxiously longing for, for the revealing of the sons of God. And why is it that creation itself is, uh, is longing for such a thing? Uh, uh, the answer is it is not yet. Creation itself is not yet all it was intended to be. Creation, the natural world, is in essence frustrated with regard to its intended purpose. Its intended purpose is to bring glory to the creator. But its purpose in so doing has been compromised. How? We did it to it. We compromise the creation in its intended purpose of bringing glory, full glory, to the creator. How in the world did we do that? Well, we sinned, for crying out loud, and something happened to the creation. And we're told what it is in verse 20, the very next verse. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Your Bible might use the word frustration. It's frustrated. Think about it. It's frustrated. Creation is in its intent to glorify God. Something has gotten in the way. Creation has been corrupted and compromised so that in essence it is subject to futility and frustration. Its purpose has been interfered with by sin. First, man and woman, our representatives, did this very thing. They violated God's one commandment. They sinned. And as a result, we're told way back in Genesis that the creation was cursed. I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, the Lord said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so you see, because of the sin of humankind, the creation was subjected to futility. It became frustrated in its purpose of fully glorifying God, the maker. But what, you may ask, is the connection between our sin and this curse put upon creation, the natural world? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. 
<clears throat> Do you know that God put us in a position of having mastery over the environment? He did. It's a great honor and also responsibility. I can read this to you also from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, first man and woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God elevated man, the crown of his creation, and gave him authority over, mastery over, dominion over creation. Do you know what happens when the master or ruler of a domain fails or falls? Every subject in the domain is victimized. So when we fell in sin in Genesis... All that we're supposed to rule over, all that is subject to us, the creation, came to be cursed. That's the connection. Master, subject, ruler, and those who are ruled. And so the entire creation was subjected to futility. Meaning, creation came to the point where it is unable to produce all it was intended to produce. For instance, it was meant to produce sustenance and stability for all humankind. Creation was the dwelling, intended to be the dwelling place of humankind, created in the image of God, the crown of God's creation. What creation wants to do is to produce sustenance and stability for all of the world's inhabitants. But instead, because it was victimized by our sin, it came to produce things like tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and famine and drought and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions and all the rest. And creation is unsettled and unsatisfied. For the creator made it to produce for all of us around the world sustenance and stability. Food and water plentifully supplied all over the world. We victimized it because it was subject to us when we sin. It became subject to futility, so it's frustrated. It can't bring forth all that it was intended to. And instead, there's an imbalance in the atmosphere, in the natural world, in the environment. Such an imbalance that what we see emanating from it are all of these severe, tragic, and destructive weather patterns that almost daily in our world take the lives of many all over the world. Now there remains, you and I know this, much beauty, I know this, in the natural world, but still we can't get away from horrors, things like floods and hurricanes and droughts and tornadoes and earthquakes and all the rest. And what is the cause of it all? God is. Look at what the verse says. We're still in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not 
willingly, but because of him, that's God, because of him who subjected to it. So here's what happened. Due to our connection to the environment, it was cursed by God because of our sin. And so the creation came to be subjected by God to futility. But, the text says, not willingly. What does that mean? Creation never willingly sinned. We did. Folks, the result is a cursed and corrupted environment. We sinned willingly. And therefore, creation suffers the consequences. Folks, the creation is innocent of sin, but has been victimized by the consequences of our sin. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, are not moral creatures. They do not make moral decisions, good ones or bad ones. They did not choose to sin against God. We did, and as a result, creation has suffered. What's the point? We like to think our sin can be kept personal and private. You know, what I do behind closed doors is should be nobody's business, that kind of thing. What a naive point of view with regard to the wide ramifications of sin. Texts like this reminds us that sin is not personal. It is global. The effects of our personal sin, that is our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, again, to whom we are connected. The effect was a cursed and corrupted environment which penalizes us and threatens us down to this very, very day. Now, the environmental movement, which is alive and well, in my opinion, is not all bad. However, anybody's attempts to uncorrupt the corrupted environment will not work since we just found out God himself is the one who subjected it to futility. So you can try to clean it up all you want. Get your new light bulbs and all this, get, you know, chemical-free fertilizer. I'm not saying these are bad things, but as an attempt to uncorrupt what we have corrupted, uh, it, it's just not going to work. So what does this mean? Is there no hope whatsoever? No, it doesn't mean that at all. There is hope. Hence, we see the last two words in verse 20. They say, in hope. So when will the effects of sin on the environment be removed? Well, they will be removed when sin is removed one day from our world. The natural order will then be what it was meant to be. In fact, um, you are aware of the predatory nature of many animals, aren't you? You know, lions and bears and things like that. You just, you don't want to run into a bear in the wilderness, do you? I mean, other animals don't want to. Many animals have come to have a very predatory nature. But do you know one day that will not be the case? Isaiah, in fact, in chapter 11, verses 6 to 9, gives us a glimpse of what it will be like <clears throat> one day when the curse to which the environment has been subjected is reversed. Here's a, a little advanced view uh, of what will happen in the animal world in that day. 
these are the words of Isaiah, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Can you see? That is an entire reversal of what we have come now to know to be a natural occurrence. There's, there's animosity between a wolf and a lamb. Are you kidding? They're not going to hang out, but one day they will. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf of the young lion and the fatling together. And get this, a little boy will lead them. Are you kidding? Can you see how the environment is subject to futility? Uh, predatory animals have come to be because of the consequence of our sin. It says, also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw, think about that, like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, there's plenty of hope. Uh, but the reversal in the predatory nature of animals and the, uh, uh, the cleansing of the environment is not going to come by human effort. I don't care how invested you are in the environmental movement. You're not going to save Mother Earth. It will be saved when Father God <laughs> sends his son... <laughs> <clears throat> again, and establishes his kingdom on earth. Folks, the entire creation has absolutely no ability to reach the goal of its intended design. It cannot achieve what it was intended to do. It's not able to fulfill its purpose. It cannot be all that God intended for it to be. It was intended for his glory to reflect his glory. And it was once able to do that. Do you remember the account of creation? And when God the creator finished, he stepped back like an artist, admiring his work. And remember what he said? It is very good. In Hebrew, tov ma'od. That means good to the max. The artist uh, uh, gave a critique of his, uh, uh, of his art. And he said, it's flawless, it's uncorrupted. It was ready to produce all those things which would redound to God's glory. And there would be sustenance worldwide. No floods, no famine, nothing like that. But we sinned. And the universe has been corrupted. The environment was cursed. So folks, natural disasters, the likes of which we saw in that earlier news report, result, we must... Uh, take responsibility here, they result from man's fall and God's judicial judgment because of our sin on the creation which he put in subjection to us. So hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and the like, you entertained the question earlier, why did God create such things? The answer is he didn't. It was not part, none of those things were part of his perfect plan. These things are the result of the imbalance of nature that came about as a result of our sin. We sinned. Because of our connection to the earth, God judged it as a consequence of our sin. He subjected it to futility. And why did he do this? I think he did it to show us the wide-ranging effects of sin. We take it awfully lightly, don't we? we? We rather easily and frivolously choose to sin when it feels good. 
God wants us to see the wide-ranging ramifications of sin. He wants us to see even how our personal sin spills over even into the natural order of things. And he wants us to be so grieved by the unsettledness of the world in which we live. He wants us to be so affected by the imbalance in nature. He wants us to be so disturbed about, ha- about what happens in the natural order that is so, so threatening to human life that we cry out for a holy lifestyle, the likes of which the Creator intended for us to live. He wants us to become so repulsed by the wide-ranging effects of our sin, again, even on the natural world, that we turn from it and turn to Him and live as we were intended to be. He wants us to see the impact of sin, and therefore, though God did not create all these climatic anomalies he allows them so as to disturb us we're in an unsafe environment though God made it to be not only safe but capable of sustaining the world's population he wants us to be shaken up unsettled he wants us to cry out for a day when Jesus will come and make all things new he wants us to make our petition to him he wants us to bow before him the most high god to turn to him to confess our sin to pray for others who are in sin he wants us to see we can't save ourselves nor the environment he wants us to turn to him as savior but there is hope that according to verse 21 the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The curse to which the creator subjected his creation will one day be lifted. Man can't save himself, nor can he save the environment. We are both in bondage. We cannot free ourselves, but one day both we and the environment will be set free by God. Until then, something happens. It's not good, but it happens. Both we and the environment, until we're set free, you know what we do? We groan. Take a look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, look what it's doing, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. I don't have this as a personal experience, but (coughs) I've observed my wife bearing our sons, the pains suffered by a woman in childbirth almost always cause her to groan, don't they? But it's a hopeful groan, isn't it? It's not a groan of despair for a woman in labor. It's not a groan of despair. It's a hopeful groan. Why? Uh, Because she's expectant of new life. She's no, she knows there's meaning behind the pain. The groaning, you see, is not without hope. And so, too, is creation's groan. It's like a woman in labor, creation. It's going through an agony, if you will, now. It's not all its creator intended for it to be. It's unsettled and in distress. But the agony is meaningful to creation because creation knows after all the pain and the groaning, which is part of it, there will be birthed new life, renovation, redemption, and a recreated environment, which is sin-free. Yeah, there's plenty of hope 
Until then, however, creation groans. And not only this, take a look at verse 23. That's how it starts. Not only this, but also we. Oh, so now we're part of this text. We read about creation groaning. But not only this, not only is creation growing, but also we ourselves. Look, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly. Same words used earlier of creation. We too are waiting eagerly. We're on our tiptoes, waiting eagerly, anxiously longing for our adoption as sons, namely the redemption of our body. The creation groans. We groan. There's a whole lot of groaning going on in the world today. We too are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We're waiting for the redemption of our body. Our souls have been redeemed. Our spirits have been redeemed. Our bodies have not yet fully been redeemed. There's still sin in our members. The presence of sin still is in our physical bodies. These physical bodies still age, are subject to disease and death. They wear out. We are longing, we are groaning while we're in these wonderful but limited temples, these physical, these vessels, these vehicles that carry us from place to place in this fallen creation. We're groaning for the time when we are in a glorified body, no longer subject to things like cancer and leukemia and diabetes and all the rest, no longer subject to automobile accidents and um, birth defects and, and all the rest. There's a groaning. Where is it? I don't hear it. It says we, we groan within ourselves. Do you sense it? Do you sense that in your own life? Look, the text says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What does that mean? When, if you have, when you've accepted, when I've accepted the Lord Jesus, he sent his Spirit to dwell in us, and we taste of his presence somewhat. He's, he's changing us. We see it. He's moving some of us to be baptized, to be publicly identified with him, just as we saw this wonderful, this wonderful lady here just a few minutes ago. He's moving us to be in a place like this, a church, when we could be elsewhere. He's moving us to consult his Bible instead of doing our own thing. He's changing us with regard to how we use our money. He's given us a new attitude about marriage, about sexuality, and all the rest. He's opened our eyes to Scripture. He's given us a desire to pray to an unseen God, the one we've never prayed to before. These are all the first fruits uh, evidence of the Spirit in us. We love the first fruits, but we want more. We groan for the rest. We groan for the time when our bodies are redeemed, just like our souls and spirits. We groan for the redemption of our bodies. So I ask you, but don't answer out loud, are you uncomfortable in life? I, I'm at the point where I, I think being uncomfortable in this life is one of the uh, evidences that you're a saved person. <laughs> I know in some churches they preach the opposite, that if you're uncomfortable, it's because you lack faith or something. I think the normal Christian life is to groan. That's what the text says. You know, you're, you, you get to the point where you say, I'm so uncomfortable here. Why? Because I have seen the effects of sin in my own life. 
there are certain consequences of my own sin, you say, and I'm living with them. And then you say, I see the effects of sinful choices in the lives of those around me, and I ache because of it. And then you feel a pain right here, and you got a headache right there, and you got dryness in the mouth here, and you got acid reflux over here, and you got an earache, you know, over here, and you got arthritis, and you got, and you groan, you groan, you long for the, you know, you, come on, if you're not groaning, I wonder if you're redeemed. You may be too comfortable here for crying out loud. That's a sign of new life. You've realized based on the down payment of the Holy Spirit in you that this is not your home, that your citizenship is in heaven. You realize you're just not there yet. You're groaning just as creation is for the revealing of the sons of God. You know you're a son or daughter of God, but the fullness of it has not yet happened until we enter into our glorified, disease-free, death-free bodies. You know the Bible says there'll be a day when he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Who here doesn't shed tears? Who isn't grieving the loss of a loved one? Who doesn't suffer the throes of bereavement? Who doesn't ache when you sit at the bedside of a child or a parent or a spouse? But there's a day, there's a day when none of that, the Bible says he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There no longer will be any mourning or crying or pain. There won't be any death. What does that mean? How does anyone here escape from the throes of death? I don't mean just your own. I mean those close to you. Who here isn't touched by it? Who here doesn't grieve and weep? Who doesn't feel half of what they used to be because a spouse is not here anymore? You're groaning. And if you are, thank God you're a Christian. And you know this place is not your home. And you have a hopeful, anxious longing. You're on your tiptoes. You're straining your neck. You want to see these loved ones who died in faith once again. You want to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. You want a body fit for eternity, not subject to death and disease in any way. We groan in disappointment in all the things that are part and parcel of this life, waiting eagerly on tiptoe, straining our necks for our ultimate deliverance. The Spirit has wonderfully been given as a down payment, as a, as a guarantee that there's more to come. And so what we sense now and taste now and experience now from God's spirit in us. Do you know it's only a foretaste of what is to come? And that taste of what is to come makes us groan for more of it. Folks, the point is this. We must never forget where we are headed. We must never forget that this life is not the essence of our life. That this home is not our home. We must realize it's good to think about, to read what the Bible says about, and to hunger for heaven. It's good to have a hunger for heaven. Though we groan, we have a future hope of heaven. And it's that future hope that keeps us from despair. Non-believers are in despair in this world. Christians only groan. There's a big difference. It's a hopeful groan. It's not a desperate groan of despair. We groan, but it's hopeful. It's a hopeful groan in which we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and as daughters. I close with, uh, with this. 
in the Roman world, you know, that's the world in which Paul here is writing. They had a concept of adoption. And in the Roman world, the word, the concept of adoption had two phases. The first was obvious. It meant a transfer of the, adopt, uh, the adopted son or daughter from one family to a new one. That's phase one. Uh, phase two, however, is when the adopting Roman family would go public. And they would publicly make it known, announce to others, this son, this daughter is our child and our heir. That's phase two. Paul refers to us as ones who've been adopted. We are adoptees. Almighty God adopted us. Phase one of adoption has already taken place. There's been a transfer from one domain, that of darkness, to the other. We are now in the family of God. He is our father. We are his sons and daughters. But phase two has not yet taken place. It awaits us. I'm telling you, life is tough. It produces lots of understandable, normal uh, groanings. But I tell you, the best is yet to come. It'll be phase two. When on some occasion, in some way, in eternity, God will call everyone to attention, all things under the earth, on the earth, and above the earth, every element of creation. He will call in, into attention everything that he has made, and he would say, I have an announcement to make. He will say, pay close attention because I want to introduce to you my son, my daughter. Here are my children. Cosmos, creation, demons, angels, non-believers. Look, I make a phase two declaration. These are my children. That's what we've not yet heard. That's what has not yet happened. That's what creation groans for and longs for. That's what we ought to be groaning for and longing for. I tell you, a healthy measure of discomfort is evidence that you've been moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. But it isn't a despairing groan. It's a hopeful groan. Can you imagine the day when somehow we stand in white robes with new names in full array in the presence of almighty God. He calls the universe to creation and he says behold these are my children. Let me tell you something. Whatever happens in this corrupted and unsettling world though the hurt is quite intense and deep, we could make it. Groan, please groan, it's normal. Join with creation, groan together. But keep the forward look, the best is yet to come. So Lord Jesus, you've gone before us as first fruits of the resurrection. And because you have won victory over this world, and its last enemy, death. So too we follow. We have a hopeful expectation of real life, real renovation, real redemption, a new heaven and a new earth to come. 
Until that time, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to groan absolutely, yet not without hope, to find solace in one another, to find solace in the fact that even every element of creation is groaning along with us. Oh God, things are building up to a grand climactic end. And we will be there by your grace, front and center, to be publicly introduced, revealed to be your sons and daughters. And at that point, we will say, oh God, what we experienced was momentary light affliction in comparison to the glories that we will experience with you in our glorified bodies in your literal presence forevermore. We long for the day. We groan for it. And until that happens, Lord Jesus, strengthen us for all the work we still yet have to do. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.